Welcome to your weekly dose of comedy with your host, Dana Pereira. Where's our participation trophy? What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Where's Our Participation Trophy. I'm Dana Pereira. And today I'm really, really excited because a couple of my favorite things, which is improv, and you guys know that I just started improv not too long ago. I'm a little tiny itty bitty baby girl in improv and some paranormal shit. And my guest has an interest in both of them. Today I have Christopher Susie. Hi, everybody. Hey. So, First off, I know that you are like a man of many talents, right? We got some directing in there. We got some acting in there. We got some theater in there. Tell us about yourself. Oh, sure. Um, You know, I made a decision uh, shortly after getting out of the Army. I made the decision never to do a job I didn't like. Never do a job I didn't love, in fact. And um and finding things that I loved was surprisingly easy mm-hmm. uh, because we spend all our lives denying that those things are important. We always push them to the side. We're like, well, that'll be a hobby. That'll be something that we, you know, uh, pursue after retirement or these are the kinds right? of things. And it's like, why? Mm-hmm. Why do we push off these things we love and trudge through <laughs> a weary yeah. life of nine to five and things like that? So. Um, in my 20s, uh, I just hit the ground running with how do you get shows off the ground? How do you get you know work done? What do you do to fulfill the artistic and, and creative elements of your life? And, uh, and really, uh, the, the message that I always try to tell people is there's no place to do it. It's where you are. Wherever you are, go, go and do it. You know, there's, there really isn't something stopping you. Lots of people think that it's, it's, there's all these obstacles and those obstacles that is for a path that somebody else went down. Yeah. Make your own path, find your own way. You know, obstacles are, are there because someone else identified them. That doesn't mean you have to engage them. You can go around, you know, find, find another way to do it, which is, which is all improv. You know, that's, that's yeah. the, the glorious lesson of improv is stay aware, always move forward. You know, um, the, the yes and is, in fact, just keep moving forward. And that's, you know, that's a valuable, invaluable lesson. Totally. I, I got to say, I'm pretty impressed that you learned this in your 20s. Did I hear that correctly? Because like that yes. is almost that that seems like an urban legend to me. <laughs> <laughs> that's the paranormal side of the story. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it was well, the ghost uh, of your past coming to yeah. <laughs> give you some wisdom. I was definitely on, on a path that made sense. You know, it was the, I'm out of high school. How am I going to pay for college? I'll join the army and the army will pay for this and that and this. And um, it was a, uh, not a great time to join the army. And there was a lot of uh, upheaval. And uh, what ultimately happened was when I got out of the army, um, college did not look the same. It was like, what am I doing that for? What, yeah. what, what is this for? And so I, you know, I went to college, but everything felt like I'm not pursuing anything. I'm just, I'm just doing the next thing on the list. Mm-hmm. And that list wasn't even mine. You know, somebody else came up with that list, you know, uh, uh, high school, college job. That was, that was someone else's list and, and, and a job that, you know, 
paid and made sense and all these these other things that that you know it's glorious but i felt very strongly that if i was going to do anything it had to be something i was really passionate about something i loved because otherwise i'll just sit on the couch and eat oreo cookies which and, you know i actually literally did right for you know, a year like, yeah. <laughs> for, for about so, a year I, I i i was i was such a slug i was just <laughs> You know, Oreos will uh, do that to you, man. They weigh you down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, and and I, you know, I I have my sister to thank for that because she was on the same path. She was um, she was she was on the road to become a psychiatrist, and uh, and she tells me because in high school I did theater and I I, I enjoyed theater and I, it was a great camaraderie thing, and uh, and she tells me that you know she was always jealous of me being in theater and doing theater and that, that, that I went for it Yeah, because she, she was, she was an academic and, and, and because she was an academic, it gave me, you know, a little leeway to, to pursue other things because she had it covered. She was, she was going to be the responsible one. I was going to be, you know, the, the kid that didn't quite measure up. So it was, it was fine with me, that arrangement. Um, but uh, she, she was like, I, I think I want to try acting. I think I want to, you know, go towards being an actor. Uh, and, uh, and we went to a small community theater in town and uh, watched the show and then found out there was an audition coming up. And we just found ourselves in a position to experience these things and, and have that, that, that fire, you know, renewed and a reason to get off the couch, a reason to put the Oreos down. <laughs> I mean, it has to be a really good reason to put Oreos it down. It really <laughs> does. I'm, I may not have put them completely down, you know, but it came more of a weekend thing than an everyday thing. You know. Well, it, it always uh, boggles my mind that we expect teenagers to essentially know what they want to do for the rest of their life. You know, like I have a 16 year old. He just passed his driver's test today. Oh, and- God. I'm like, there's no way that I would ever expect him to make a decision about his future, stick to it and be happy with it because we're changing and growing and evolving so much. That's so interesting that you say that too, because there's a flip side to it. And that is where better to find the thing that you love for the rest of your life than in your childhood. Uh, my, my, uh, My child is 19 now. Uh-huh. and has known all their life what they wanted to be and are insane successes at it right now. Yeah. And it was, it was one of those things where, and I, I, I like to think I had a lot to do with at least the idea that you didn't have to follow the structure. Mm-hmm. The idea that is that your dream pursue it, you know, is that your dream then do it. But to be honest, they had, drive that I never had, you know, I, I still don't have that drive and, and they are, they're killing it. And yeah. it's, it's fascinating uh, because it is, it's a whole new world out mm-hmm. there. Um, they're, uh, they're, they write musicals um, for stage, uh, stage musicals uh, and okay. they write music and songs and, uh, and they're basically TikTok famous and they're basically, you know, uh, they make their money from streams of their music and, and it is, it is a full career. It is not, you know, it, it is not the hobby. It's not the thing you put off. And, right. and I want to say 
20 years ago, somebody saying that they were going to do that, you know, the doors would have been locked to them. Mm-hmm. But in today's day and age, in the privacy of your own home with your phone, you can reach millions of people. You know, you can you can literally have an impact that was reserved for superstars, for people who who went through the trenches and and, and came out on the other side. So, you know, right now we're looking at a great democratization of the arts and of uh, thought. People being able to sit down. You know, you're in California. I'm in Savannah, Georgia. Yeah. And, and share this idea with people all over the world. You know, exactly. how weird is that? It's it's definitely not something that I would have ever dreamed up whenever I was in high school, you know, like the the fact that I could even pick up my phone and FaceTime, you know, like my grandma or whoever wasn't even a concept that entered my brain at that point. It it would have been like a movie that was set 50 years in the future that I couldn't have even conceptualized. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, how weird is it that, that we have these abilities that are you know, yeah, fantasy, pure fantasy. I've got a, I've got a device about the size of my wallet that I could, you know, take a picture of myself and send it to China, and it'll be there right away. And it's like without what? having to dig the whole way down through the earth. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so, talk to me a little bit about improv. As I mentioned, I just started improv eight weeks ago, and I am obsessed with it. I feel like I have found my little community of eclectic weirdos that I fucking love so, so, so much. And I, I'm just obsessed with it. I love it. And even implying the, the things that I learn from improv into my everyday life, it, it really is kind of eye-opening. Yeah. I cannot stress enough to anyone who sees, hears this, take an improv class, go and do it. You don't know how useful every bit of it is in every aspect of your life. It is not just performing and it is not just comedy. And it is not just about the time you're on stage. It is, it is about approaching things with a, a mode, uh, a modality to move forward, to, to, to continue being engaged. And yeah, I, I, I am, I, I came to improv through acting, uh, took a lot of great classes from a lot of great people. And what was fascinating was um, comedy improv, which ultimately became, uh, I opened a, uh, an improv theater here in Savannah, Georgia called Odd Lot Improv. And we started in 2009. And, you know, right up till the pandemic, we, we were doing shows every week. Oh, wow. And, and what was fascinating was that style of performance is uh, is this zany, crazy, fun thing. And what people don't really think about is the mechanics behind it were developed, literally developed so that people could more comfortably engage other people. Mm-hmm. You know, it was meant to help actors bridge the gap between the text on the page and the emotions that they're supposed to convey. Yeah. Because uh, intimacy is super hard to manage in real life, but imagine pretending with somebody that you're not, you know, involved with. And how do you, how do you manufacture these sensations and feelings? Well, improv was a tool that ultimately got turned into, you know, whose line is it anyway? And people (laughs) enjoyed it. And, and, and 
we were just lamenting because we, we haven't been able to perform regularly or actually at all in the last year and a half. And what we were looking uh, two years, excuse me, two oh, years. I know it's been so long. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh my God. <laughs> um, uh, and we were just lamenting, you know, we used to laugh so hard, so regularly. And it's amazing that that was a part of our lives. And that was, you know, what we did was we made each other laugh and we laughed, you know, heartily three to four times a week. And yes. it, it doesn't get much better than that as far as like p- pursuits, you know, what, what, what could you be doing with your life? If not making your friends laugh and laughing with them, having this great time. And, um, and the funny thing is the whole reason why we started this uh, improv company was because we were a bunch of actors who couldn't commit to rehearsal schedules because we had families, we had children, mm-hmm. small children, and we had all these uh, responsibilities that were like, if we, if we rehearse all the time, we we're going to miss out on some of the most important elements of our life. So what if we did shows that didn't require rehearsal? You know, we just show up and we just, you know, perform. Yeah. So that was our, that was our whole, our whole reason for, for beginning. And it became this wonderful journey of self-discovery of saying, oh, you know what? Improv is, is why I can talk to anybody, anybody who, if you're out there and you, you want to run a podcast, especially one that involves interviews, improv's the way to go. It gives you the tools to just speak to people, to just talk to them, to just break down that weird introductory portion of every relationship you know you have to get past the unfamiliarity you know yeah. I've never met you we don't know each other and but- I think it helps you get out of your own head because whenever at least for whenever I started improv I start interacting with these people I was so nervous my first day walking in there but guess what so was that person. And so was that person. And so was that person. And then whenever they start making you do ridiculous things, like pretend like I was somebody from my own life that I knew, but nobody else knew. And I'm walking around and I'm thought that I would have felt so stupid trying to pretend I was trying to be my husband, trying to pretend to be my husband in front of all of these people. But this guy was pretending to be his grandma and he was looking stupid and ridiculous and everybody was looking stupid and ridiculous. And then you just laugh and it, you realize that uh, you don't look stupid and ridiculous. You're just having fun. You're just playing as an adult. The most important lesson in that regard to me is the only true way to look like a fool is to be afraid of looking like a fool. That's that's the only time you will look like a fool is when you're so caught up in the idea that I'm going to look like a fool. I'm going to look foolish that you start to hesitate. Now you start to, to uh, hold back, let it go, go all out. Don't, don't stop short because stopping short is foolish, but going all out is brave. It's, it's, you know, uh, joyful. It's, it, it's an inspirational. So a lot of times when you, when you deal in improv, you're saying, okay, leave the fear of looking like a fool at the door because everybody's going to look like a fool, but it'll be appreciated and consumed and people enjoy it and, and interact. But the second you start to hesitate, that's where it breaks down. That's where the foolishness really plays a a terrible part because that part is when the audience is judging you (laughs) and when other people are judging you is when you've judged yourself because they can see it. There's this big, 
you know, sign over your head that you're like, I'm thinking about it. Yeah, I'm freaking out, man. I'm freaking out. <laughs> so you have had a lot of years in improv now. Oh, yeah. Um, is there anything that stands out like a, a really funny audience suggestion that somebody threw out or something like that, that you were like, oh my God, it, and how did it turn out? So the interesting thing about it is because of the nature of our games, because we played short form primarily, you know, um, we would we would mix it like uh, the first act short form, second act long form. And then after a while, we just started just doing the short form to, to tighten the show for no other reason. And um, what was interesting there is is that people, they become... Uh, audience members become such regulars that there's a callback system that they will call jokes back from, oh. from out of the blue. And so certain ones uh, for years, uh, anytime we had to go to a restaurant or we'd ask the audience, Hey, where's a place that you could take a date or things like that. The answer was always McApplebee's. <laughs> McApplebee's. And it just became like our running gag is that no matter where we were going, no matter how fancy it was, it was McApplebee's. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, we played a, a, a game called uh, Emotions, and we'd have to get emotions. And then every time the bell ring, we changed to a different emotion. <laughs> and one time, a woman, the emotion that she uh, wanted us to portray was stabby, <laughs> and it was and it's golden, you know, stabby. And and we fell into it right away. And for years, I mean, for uh, that was like maybe within the first two years of of us doing the shows, but right up until the last show we did, somebody in the audience would be like, Stabby! Yeah. <laughs> and and, and we, everyone understood what Stabby meant and who, what, it, what it was. So it, it's, it's funny because asking for something that stands out is really hard because in the end, it, it's like waves and waves of experiences that we have. And the ones that stand out just kind of blend into the others that stand out. You know, we, we it's, it's, it's a joyous act to perform solely for the entertainment of others. We're not trying to enter. You're right. We're not trying to uh, teach lessons. We're not trying to, you know, uh, uh, patch society. We're not. Yeah, you know, no world peace is happening type. here. Or... Right. You know, we are letting people get away from it. And we were a, um, we were family friendly, uh, which was fascinating because uh, improv does lend itself to raunch if you let it. And especially with an audience that you're getting suggestions from, but from the very beginning, because we had small children at the time, the, the concept was, I need to do something that my kids could come to. I need to do something that I wouldn't be embarrassed to do in front of, you know, a wide group of people. And it wasn't because we were, you know, prudes by any stretch of matches. It was just like, you don't need it. And you don't, you don't need it to be funny and you don't need it. It helps. Yeah. <laughs> you don't need it. And, um, and it was fascinating because years and years, our audience, would be like, oh, you should do a blue night. You should do a night where you're, you know, naughty. You should, you should do a naughty night. You should do a blue night. And so after, I think eight years of not of, of always being G-rated, uh -huh. um, but never giving up humor. I don't think we've ever missed a laugh because we weren't being raunchy. Yeah. Uh, but we finally did a blue night. We're like, oh, yeah, okay, we'll do a blue night. We we ran this blue night. We did this thing. Uh, two things happened. One. The people who always asked us to do a blue night didn't come. <laughs> they were, you know, the, the audience Son members who were like always clamoring for it <laughs> did not come to the show. And two, it wasn't as funny. You know, it, it was it was fine because the the unfortunate thing about uh, 
profanity is it's its own punchline. Uh-huh. Unrelated. You don't have to be clever to drop an F-bomb and make people laugh. Uh, and that kind of detracts from the story building sometimes. Uh, a well-placed F-bomb, a, well, a, you know, a well-placed Oh, I got lots of well-placed F-bombs, don't exactly. you? Exactly. <laughs> you know, you know, and, and with the right emphasis at the right moment is golden. But what you also find out is there's a lot of times when it just comes out because you don't know what else to say. And, uh, and that's kind of my personal philosophy of profanity as, as uh, in general, uh-huh. save it for the really important stuff, you know, <laughs> you know, use it when it needs to be used because otherwise it just seems like filler. It just seems like you didn't know what else to say. And, uh, you know, we all have better vocabularies than that. We can, <laughs> we can flip through the source of not, the brain. Not me. Yeah. <laughs> I have mom brain 100% of the time. So I will fill her with an F-bomb pretty much everywhere. <laughs> then, then that's interesting too, is to have the, the, the character who, <laughs> who you can rely on to always be there to, you know, just drop it. Oh, fuck. Uh, yeah. You know, like, oh, yeah, that were, there it was. And, right? and also my group's real pervy too. So <laughs> <laughs> We're well, super and, far away from the G rate. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's an interesting sub, you know, uh, category of it all too, is going where people, because that's the beauty of it. You can be unrestrained. Mm-hmm. You can say things that other people can't, you can break social mores. You can, you know, uh, let loose, you know, this is not how you're going to behave at the PTA. This is not, you know, how you're going to talk to your boss. Uh, depending on where you work. Um, so yeah, there is great catharsis and being able to just let it all out and let it all loose. Um, and we found quite the opposite was there's a, a great deal of, uh, of wit inside having these parameters, uh-huh. having to navigate through and think to yourself, well, we don't want to swear. We don't want to be profane. How are we going to do this? Because the funniest thing you can do is walk right up to the line and then, you know, because the audience is on the edge of their seat. They're, they're like, waiting oh. for it. And, and, and we've seen it uh, time and time again, being so involved in the scene mm-hmm. that you're usurping people's expectations. You know, they're, they're, they're expecting the worst out of people, but we kind of always pull it back and, and, and if you t- take one step over the edge, it, it slays them. It, it absolutely slays them. Oh, so see, that's interesting too, because even with like Disney movies, for example, oh, yes, so many Disney movies, they're G rated. However, they throw in some adult humor. Absolutely. To, to keep the- <laughs> and, and that was our, uh, that was our, that was our sweet spot is that we knew that if you were paying attention and if you were willing to, to walk with us, we'll always wink and nod. We'll always give you a, you know, especially, and it was fascinating because there's a, there's a, there's an unwritten rule in improv that if you ask the audience for an occupation, they will say gynecologist. It's just the <laughs> unwritten written rule. It, it, it cannot, it cannot be avoided by any stress of imagination. We actually nipped that in the bud very early in our, in our bits by playing gynecology as a very above board, straight and narrow, you know, hello, doctor. Hi. <laughs> and, then, yeah. 
and <laughs> and the the humor's there because everybody's on the edge of their seat wanting it to be dirty but we're going off the rails with some other crises it just yeah. happens to be in a gynecological situation um and we were quick to admonish the audience for their dirty minds <laughs> <laughs> And over time, we, we were able to, you know, craft an interesting audience who were dedicated to the idea of, of both walking up to the line, but they themselves stopped crossing it or even trying to. And it became a great relationship with the audience. They, 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 they learned to respect what we're attempting, and they were actually so very good at coming up with suggestions because they were no longer thinking, what if I just blurted out the, the, the worst thing I could? Right. Cause a lot of people are trying to be funny whenever right. they're doing stuff like that. And the profane and the vulgar is funny. So it that's is, like absolutely. the first thing that people think of. And I think another lesson that I learned in improv that I love is that you don't have to be funny. Like your goal in improv not is not to be funny. Your goal is to be like original and, you know, and, and the funny kind of finds its way. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's, that's a brilliant observation because it, the truth is being funny always seems forced and, and, and to the detriment of improv, one of the things that people always uh, criticize about improv or, or, or are wary of like uh, improv is the butt of a lot of jokes. And so like you watch TV or movies where they talk about improv, it's always the butt of a joke. Because people have experienced that style of improv, which is very presentational. And now we're going to do this. And this is how we're going to do it. Yeah. And it's a great it, radio voice, by the way. <laughs> well, it creates this uh, disconnect, mm -hmm. this wall between the audience and the performers. And stylistically, makes perfect sense. Satisfaction-wise, you begin to feel separated. You don't feel like you're with the performers. You feel like you're almost against them. You know, and, and, and not to say that there's anything wrong with that performance style, but it is where the criticism of improv comes from is people being alienated by the performers, by thinking there's something artificial going on. Mm -hmm. um, being artificial is detrimental to performance. When you... And it's it's such a, a hammy actory thing to say. You have to tell the truth. You know, you have to reflect the truth. You have to um, be the truth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> be the truth. Um, but the uh, the interesting thing is, it's more that the audience can spot when you're not. You know, when you're not being honest. When you're not being honest, they can spot it. So learning a how to be honest in that moment requires trusting the person on the stage with you requires mm -hmm. interacting with what they're saying and how they're acting so that you're you're responding and not performing and and and, and putting this front up because that front is it's detrimental to the relationship with an audience so i know that you have your improv company mm -hmm. and then i saw something about a shakespearean theater as yes. well i uh i own uh, savannah shakes which is a uh, a shakespeare theater uh company and uh we set out in 2015 to produce 
full length Shakespeare productions here in Savannah. And as a friend of mine and I, we, we got together and we were, we were, we were lamenting that there has not been regular Shakespeare classic theater in the area for a while. We used to have um, an annual Shakespeare festival in the park and, and that theater company shut down. And so it had been, you know, uh, almost 10 years since we had anything regular. So we were like, let's, let's do it. You know, we love Shakespeare. We love performing, we love acting. Um, and we started uh, with Taming of the Shrew. And, and our concept was let's take Shakespeare, the, the play, and drop it into a different time period so that it's relatable. And we, we don't change the language at all. And so we, we, we dropped it into post-World War II and we made the, the main character, if you're not familiar with Tang is True, uh, Kate is the Shrew. And uh, we made Kate Rosie the Riveter. We dressed her as Rosie the Riveter and it was about, you know, women's empowerment at the time when women stepped up to the plate and really, you know, came through for the country, did all those, this work. And then soldier boys came home and they kicked them to the curb. They said, go back to the kitchen. And what was fascinating was that story fit really well. And we didn't change any of the language, but we had scores of people who would come up after the show and saying, thank you for making it understandable. Thank you for, you know, changing the language. It's like, we didn't change the language. (laughs) We just changed the package Uh and you accepted it. And what people don't realize is Shakespeare wrote in English. He was, (laughs) he was an English man and he wrote in English. And when you accept the relationships and you accept what's going on, the words suddenly make much more sense because you're paying attention to the connection and the emotion and everything behind it. And we were so very proud of it. And we, we, we basically went decade by decade, you know, uh, we had the forties with Taming the Shrew and then we did a, a, a beatnik uh, Hamlet in the fifties, set in the fifties, kind of a Jack Kerouac, Hamlet. And then we went to Vietnam with Henry V and, and so on and so forth. We kept examining how these stories that were written 500 years ago still have a place in our, um, in our human experience and our shared human experience. So did you find it difficult to pick which, um, which play you were going to put in which era or did it like click for you right away? It always clicks. It, it, the most, the most amazing thing is what we, what we would do is in this, in, in, in the regard of, uh, because we actually ended because we ended up in the future, you know, because we had, we had caught up with our time. And so we did a, a like a star Wars influenced Macbeth, you know, a futuristic yeah. Macbeth because we had gotten to present day with measure for measure and what was happening was basically we're like, what was, what was, what was happening at this time? What was the, the tumult of the time and how, um, what Shakespeare play has similar, you know, issues. And it was always really clear, you know, it was always, wow. really, you know, um, and like right now we're talking about once, once we get back into production, looking at um, focusing hard on like maybe a, a handful of plays that would take place in Savannah using Savannah as the backdrop. And we're like, you know, Romeo and Juliet during the civil war makes perfect sense. You know, that that's an obvious, that's kind of a no brainer. Um, and uh, right after the civil war, you had the reconstruction. That's a great place for uh, Othello, which was about a black man who rose in rakes amongst a white you know, society. Mm-hmm. And that 
fits in the time when freed slaves were getting jobs and were, you know, were, were standing shoulder to shoulder and being despised for it. And so you, 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 it, it, it does amazingly come together just by the simple saying, well, what was the, what was the main issue here? Yeah. What was going on in our, in our lives in the country, in the world here? And say, oh yeah, Shakespeare wrote about it. <laughs> uh, it's the reason why we still produce Shakespeare at all is, oh, those are stories that we all understand. We all recognize. You know, I don't know if we all understand them, but we definitely know they exist. <laughs> that's, that's a good point. Uh, I think one of, the, one of the joys is when people come to our shows, they tend to get a better understanding than they had mm-hmm. before. Uh, and it's because they recognize the, the costume and, you know, the attitude and, you know, we're not being as presentational with the language. It, it, it's, it's the the same thing I was just talking about. If you're connecting and you're, you're, you're breaking down that barrier between yeah. the audience and the actors, that's important because if you show up and it's very stiff and they're in cl- costumes that don't make sense and you're, you know, hey, 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 oh, <laughs> it's going to make people like, I don't, I don't like Shakespeare. It's like, well, hang on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you, first things first, he was a horn dog. Everyone was having sex. It's a lot of blood and gore. You know, it, it is not, it, it shouldn't be taught to children. <laughs> it, 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 he because, is not G-rated. <laughs> yeah, it is not G-rated because when you, when you explain to kids, you know, oh, by the way, in this line, when he says, what with my tongue in your tail, what do you actually, you know, it's like, the line's very direct. You know, he's not, it's, it's not, you know, uh, 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 a innu- innuendo. Yeah. <laughs> it's direct. He was not being, uh, you know, sly. So, uh, and, and there, and there's so much like that. So many, so many moments in it that if you, if you played it the way that it was actually written, the audience would be all, you know, oh my. Oh, well, I'm telling you, Mercy. half my audience right now is like, shit, you guys hear a Shakespeare? I need to go get one of those books. <laughs> Oh, so do you think that your uh, love of Shakespeare and um, kind of that time is tied to your love of the paranormal as well? So interestingly, uh, and Shakespeare definitely does uh, have a very long history of pulling from the uh, uh, paranormal uh, occult and and fairy tales and and bringing about ghosts, you know, famously mm-hmm. in, in Hamlet, there's the father's ghost. Um, but what's fascinating is I, <laughs> my obsession with ghosts began when I was six years old. When I was six years old, me and a friend, we broke into a old abandoned house in Germany. Uh, my father was in the army we lived in Germany and we broke into this house and in this house we experienced what I can only describe as a nightmare you know a waking nightmare and uh and for years I couldn't sleep I was an insomniac from age six to ten I could not sleep I uh, I was terrified of everything the dark was merciless to me and um and I was also, I guess, an addict because having that experience in this house made it so that I kind of 
wanted to be in that place again, into the, in that, in that fight or flight, fearful place. And so even at like six years old, I was going around saying, is that place haunted? Is there a ghost there? Are there ghosts here? And in Germany, everything's haunted. It's all <laughs> haunted. It's all terrible. You know, that's where we used to cut people's heads off. And here in this woods, yeah. a, a young lady was, you know, brutally bur- murdered. And over there is the Blackwoods. And look, there's a castle where, you know, a woman, a headless woman wanders every night. So, so many ghost stories. And so from the ages of six to 10, I was always sneaking out at night. I was always running around, you know, the countryside. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and it was, it was a fascinating thing because what I came to understand more than anything else was I needed the story. I needed to know, desperately needed to know. Because once I knew the story, the fear of that ghost abated. Um, the story of the house, for instance. You know, we had gone into this house and... Uh, the experience was was horrible sounds, screams, and and chains. Even there were chains. The whole nine years. It was. It were was, you seeing this, or was this audible? No, so I didn't see it. My friend Mike did. Okay. Um, but he never spoke to me again. Okay. We literally, Thanks, he Mike. literally, <laughs> uh, like we were locked in this house. Like what happened was we slipped into the basement of the house, and then we couldn't get back out the window because oh. it was too high up. So going into the house, all the doors and windows were actually nailed shut. So trying to get out the doors was a no-go. So we had to go up to the next floor. And, um, and Mike actually went upstairs before me, and then I lost him. Like when I went upstairs, I couldn't find him at all. And I was too scared to go anywhere else because it was late in the day and the sun was setting and it was dark. So I, I stayed by six. the only window that had light coming through it. So the only light in the whole building was this window that wasn't boarded up and the street lights were coming through it. And I heard horrible pounding. It sounded like somebody was walking towards me, but as I, as I, you know, strained my eyes to the darkness, it was on the ceiling. Like someone was walking on the ceiling towards me and I heard these terrible chains, you know, and and even as a child, I can remember being and uh, you know, very, very young thinking well, that's cartoony, you know, it's like, well, that's, you know, I didn't even know what the word cliche was, but I'm pretty sure that's what I was thinking was what are the odds that this ghost is going to have chains? So Mike screams bloody murder somewhere in the house. He comes running out of this area that I could not explore because it was too dark. He runs past me and down the stairs and <laughs> runs right at that door that's nailed shut and knocks it off its hinges and just keeps running. Wow. So he like Kool-Aid manned through the door. He Kool-Aid manned out the front door. <laughs> so I went running because uh, this is an important lesson for anyone who ever goes on a ghost hunt. If one person screams, everyone screams. So when he screamed, I screamed. When he ran, I ran. So I was following him. I got down the stairs. I got out of the house. And once I was out of the house, I was fine. I was like, I'm not in the house anymore. Mike still kept running, run, 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 run. And he didn't come back to school. He didn't come back to school the next day. He didn't come back to school the day after that. I would go by his house. His mom would just turn me away and say, Mike's not feeling well. Mike's not doing well. And I started getting these horrible dreams. And these dreams 
they involved, <laughs> it was always the same thing. It was always this, this chest of drawers, old chest of drawers. And so I, no matter where my dream was, I could be, you know, off in the forest or I could be, you know, at school having a, you know, dream, whatever, this chest of drawers would show up and it would just, everything in my body would just seize up and I couldn't take it. And I was drawn to the chest of drawers. I had to go to the chest of drawers, no matter how much I tried, no matter how much I fought, I, I had to open the chest of drawers and the chest of drawers were full of gore blood and guts and the insides of people and being so young I had no idea what I was looking at yeah because I didn't know this at the time but the inside of the human body isn't just red there's all kinds of colors going on there's all kinds of shapes and 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 things and that's what I was looking at was gore that I couldn't place Mm -hmm. and as I pulled drawer after drawer things became more obvious until the bottom drawer were two small boys' heads. In the wow. Bottom. And that's how my dream would end. Every, every time I tried to sleep, it would, it would come to that point. I'd open it. These two children's heads were in the bottom drawer. I was totally lost, you know, um, and, the, and all my drawings were, you know, headless boys and, you know, this chest of drawers. That ought um, to, you know, raise an eyebrow here and there at school when you have a notebook. Did, yeah. I, I had a lot of meetings. Uh, and uh, what was interesting was I, I started learning how to draw Garfield, the cat Garfield, to get out of trouble. Because that was the only thing I started drawing after a while, because I found out that if you, if you draw decapitated children a lot, Oh. They send you to the office. Yes. If you draw they Garfield about lot, that. <laughs> they're like, okay, he's drawing, you know, cartoon cats now. He likes cats. Yeah, exactly. So right before we left Germany, um, my dad, you know, got orders and he's like, we're moving away. And I went back to the house because I had never, I had not been back to that house the entire time, but knowing that I may never see it again, I thought I should go. And I'm 10 years old now. Mm-hmm. A man. I felt that I had a, a lot of a lot of information going for me. So I, I drove I drove. I rode my bike down to the house. I'm sorry, I'm just picturing you in a car yeah, driving right now. <laughs> Ten year old. Uh so I, we go down to the house and uh it was a terrifying house. Just looking at that. You've seen these houses, they're dilapidated, they're old, and just looking at it, you're like, oh that's you know, that, I, I don't need to go in. I know that place is haunted. Yeah. Um, but there was a caretaker. There was an actual man, like, maintaining the lawn, the little lawn area, the landscaping. And he sees me standing in front of this house. And he comes over, and he's an old German man. And he's like, this is a haunted house. You know, and he's happy. He's like, this is a yeah. haunted house. And I'm like, oh, I know. You, know, <laughs> you don't have to tell me, buddy. And, um, and he says, um, but we will never tear it down. You know, the, the town will never tear it down. We're like, okay. And he tells me the story. He says, there were bad men who wanted to hurt the family that lived in this house. So the family hid in the walls oh, and up shit. in the attic. And while they were hiding, the bad men found out. And so they stormed into the house to take the family away. But when they got to the attic, all they found was the father and an axe. The father thought the only way he could protect his family 
was to hide them, chopping them into pieces and putting them under the floorboards in the wall in a chest of drawers. Oh, shit. The bad men were so afraid of the father when they saw him standing there that they simply chained him to the center post of the attic rather than arresting and taking him away. They left him there. So were you and peeing it, your pants at this point? It was, it was, it was better than that. It was, <laughs> it was like having someone reach into my head and pull out a sore tooth in the middle of my brain uh-huh. and put it in a box and hand it back to me. Because now I had this story. I had something yeah. that made sense of the things I saw. And I remember that night was the first night in four years that I had not had a nightmare. It was the first night I slept in four years because something inside me said, that's what this is all about. Right. And, and it, that's became, not you. And that became my pursuit. Find the story. And even more than anything else, it's like, it doesn't even matter to me how, how well-researched or how, how it's about that sensation, that elation of, oh, is that what happened? You know, is that the story that everyone tells? Is that how they explain it for themselves? Is that the box that they put their demons in Yeah. and pass to the next person? And so it's been a lifelong trek of mine to gather ghost stories, but more than that, to tell stories, to find stories to tell. And that's where theater came in. Because theater is just storytelling. It's just taking someone else's story and transferring it to the next listener. Mm-hmm. And that becomes the, the paramount of everything I, I achieve or try to achieve is everything I do, I want to be storytelling. I want it to be taking information either from me or from the world at large and delivering it to the next person to be a conduit for it rather than where it stops. <laughs> rather than where the, the story builds up inside of me and just torments and tortures me. Yeah. And so you also do some screenplays, right? So do you yes, take I'm a, ghost that's stories? And, and Technically what I do for a living is I'm a writer. I, uh, I punch up scripts and I write for producers and for people who, who need scripts for any variety of reasons. I've written for stage and for television, for film. And, um, and it is, it's, it's, it's all, it all comes back to being trapped in that house and knowing the relief of having the story told of, 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 and knowing how cathartic and wonderful it was (laughs) to, to have that itch scratched. Like, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it was. Ah, I know what it is. You know, that release. So are you the kind of guy, because I'm the kind of girl that walks through cemeteries and kind of. I I have been arrested uh, three times. That's not where I thought that was going to go, but yes. <laughs> yes. I, I, uh, I, I once uh, stayed, I hid in a museum after hours, after they locked up so I could get a closer look at some items that I was sure were haunted. And yes, I, um, I, I'm not nearly as bad as I was, <laughs> but there was a time. 
when it was, it, it was an obsession. I was obsessive about it. Um, now I feel like, uh, and I'm lucky because what happened was as my adventuring, breaking and entering days were coming to an end with ghosts, um, I learned that I get great satisfaction from hearing people tell events of their lives. So I, I, I literally started just interviewing people. I, I went door to door for a while. I, um, I, I once put my name and number in a uh, local newspaper. I was like, hey, you got ghost stories? Give me a call. Terrible idea. Don't do that. <laughs> that, is, that is the worst way to, uh, to encounter people is just blankly giving people your phone number. Yes, I could imagine. Uh, yeah, no, I, I got some very strange and peculiar calls, but I also got great ghost stories. People, uh, for anybody who doesn't know about Savannah, Georgia, Savannah, Georgia celebrates being very haunted. Yes. And there's a lot of, I, I was a ghost tour guide for years and years and years. Um, and it was because I was the guy who used to go around knocking on people's doors going, Hey, you got a ghost story. You got any, you know, paranormal activity, any psychic encounters. Yeah. And people Can I come were quick in? Can to I go be to like, Oh yeah, my house is really haunted. You, you should see it. There's this and there's that. And, um, and what's fascinating is a lot of people don't have ghost stories. What they have are moments that they were scared. You know, they have moments that freaked them out. Mm-hmm. You know, like this, a common ghost story was, uh, hey, uh, yeah, I was in my house and I was, I was like eating and I, I had the sensation that there's something behind me, man. I just knew it was, it was like looking at me. It was right behind me. And so I turned and I looked and there was nothing there. <laughs> nothing there. And I, I would be like, well, okay. I took notes. Yeah. You thought something was there. You turned and looked. There was nothing there. Not a ghost story. Yeah. That's, <laughs> Not a, that's good a story one. of you being wrong. Yeah. yeah that's, <laughs> that's a story of you freaking yourself out. Yeah. Um, and so many stories are like that, are, are more like instances and not drawn out stories. But if you ask enough people, you'll come across so many wonderful, amazing stories of people who live perfectly normal lives. You know, they're not obsessed with ghosts. They're not, they, they tend not to even profess a belief in ghosts. Yeah. But man, they got good ghost stories. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, there's definitely no shortage of ghost stories in Savannah, Georgia, and definitely one of my favorite places that I've ever visited. It's a man, what a great place to live. Yeah. Yeah. No, when I moved here and I, I, I casually mentioned, you know, that, I, I'm, I'm really into ghosts. They're like, Oh, you came to the right place. You know? It's like, Oh, just you wait. Yeah, <laughs> man. This has been such a fun conversation to have with you. Um, I know that you recently have started a podcast. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yes. I started a podcast called the Island of lost ideas. Uh, me and the, uh, the other co-founder of my improv troupe. Uh, we are, what's a good word for it? schemers. <laughs> we always have a scheme. We always have a plan. We always have an idea. Um, and uh, basically we're both creatives and we both uh, write and, and produce and, and, and do things, but you can't always do everything. You know? uh, so we talk about how you know, my computer is full of half-written scripts and my, my you know, notebooks are full of, of doodles and drawings and things, things that I would love to have pursued and love to have told. And I cannot tell you how many times I've watched a movie and it's like, oh, I had that idea. You know, I, I was going to do something just like this. Um, and it's, it's such a creative's lament that 
people get to it before you do, <laughs> you know, yeah. that, you know, sometimes it, it, that's just the way it goes. So we, we started a podcast where we'd sit down and we just take ideas from our lost idea book and we'd flesh them out and we'd talk about them uh, mostly in, in the hopes of either rekindling an interest in finishing them or at least getting it off our chests. Yeah. So they're not just sitting around collecting dust in the back of our brain. So, um, do you have times where you like read out an idea and you're like, man, that was a real shit idea. I don't know what I was thinking. I think that's part of the beauty of it is, yeah, uh, yeah. (laughs) they're not all winners. You know, there's a reason why we abandoned some of them Uh, and you, you find it's fascinating because when you, when you, you finally decide that you're a storyteller, the amount of stories you tell yourself on a daily basis the amount of stories that, that come, you know, any small thread of anything can inspire an entire story. You see something and you're like, Oh, look at that. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden you've got a very well-rounded story in your head. Uh, that doesn't mean you're going to chase it to <laughs> its natural conclusion. Yeah. It just means that you spend a lot of time interpreting things around you in story form. That's awesome. Um, Oh, gosh, I really loved this conversation. Can you please tell people where to go if they want to find you and follow what you're doing? That's an excellent question. Uh, <laughs> so uh, you can find me on Twitter at okay. Chris Susie Story. You can find me on Instagram as Susie Man, S O U C Y M A N. I'm on TikTok. Uh, and the truth of the matter Are you is, dancing I, on I, TikTok? I, yeah, <laughs> uh, the, the interesting thing is I, I, I'm terrible at um, self-promotion because I, I, I don't think about the expanse of it. You know, uh, like even this, this podcast that we're doing, it's, it, it was just kind of one of those things where it's like, because uh, we've done podcasts in the past. Uh, mm-hmm. It's mostly just us sitting around. There's a, a great podcast that has, I don't know, eight episodes or something uh, where it's entirely in the Star Wars universe. Um, but it is, um, it's called Galactic Public Radio, GPR. And it's basically, what if, what if NPR were in outer space? Yeah. So it's a lot of people talking like this about the end of the Death Star. It, it exploded. And you know, just very softly spoken Star Wars angst. Yeah. Um, and we, we, uh, we, we just have a good time. That's basically, that's basically my goal in life at all. Yes. So it's weird because we, we don't think about success in those terms of how many people are listening, how many people are we reaching, how much money are we making, things of that nature. What we tend to think of success is how did it come together and how did it bring us together, the people working on it? And so, um, yeah, my, my main uh, goal ever is to say there's nothing out of reach. Anybody out there listening there's nothing out of reach. You just have to expand what you understand to be your limitations. And you only know your limitation when you've tried to surpass them. And surprisingly, you tend to just keep going. You know, once, once you've stepped over your boundary, that is no longer your boundary. Once you've stepped past your limits, those are no longer your limits. Yes. So just keep going. Wow. 
Um, you know, guys, I can't even say anything past that. He definitely summed it up and gave us all a good nugget to, to think about from here on out. So I'm going to put all of his information in the show notes for you. Uh, I think a lot of people can relate to that. It's when you're not chasing success so hard that some people that that's when you can find it. And hey, as always, even if you are not nailing it this week, you're still going to get that participation trophy. See ya.